0: bow your head and pray with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You are worthy. You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. You are our king. We owe you our allegiance. We owe you our entire focus. We owe you our service. Pray this morning, Lord, as we open your word, we will put our focus, put our attention on what Your Word has to say so that we can hear from You and do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, in 1958, the Green Bay Packers went one in ten. They were probably hands down the worst team in professional football. And of course, as things happen in professional sports, that led to the termination of their coach and the hiring of a new one. And they hired a new coach who went by the name of Vince Lombardi. And Vince Lombardi, who would go on to be a legendary coach there for the Green Bay Packers, had a pretty sudden turnaround. The next year, in 1959, the Green Bay Packers went from 1-10 and to 7-5. and And the next year, in 1960, they did so well, they found themselves in the championship game. And while they were playing in the championship game, uh, they were in a close struggle with the Philadelphia Eagles, and they were leading 13 to 10 with one minute to go. And with one minute remaining in the game, the Philadelphia Eagles scored a touchdown and ended up winning that championship 17 to 13. Well, despite losing in the Super Bowl in 1960, In 1960, everyone predicted that the Green Bay Packers were the hands-down favorite to win the championship in 1961. They, at that time, had on their roster a roster full of future Hall of Famers, including the, the Hall of Famer Bart Starr, and they were widely regarded as the best and most talented team in football. And so at the beginning of the 1961 season, Vince Lombardi called the team together for the first team meeting of the season. And at that team meeting, with his team gathered around him, men who were considered the best in their sport, he picked up a football and he looked at them and he said, Men, this is a football. And over the next few minutes, in painstaking detail, he began describing to this team of professional football players, in painstaking detail, the fundamentals of football. This is a football. You get this football, and you run down the field with it, and you score a touchdown while the other team tries to tackle you. This is how you block. And if you don't block, then you can't score. And once you get the blocking schemes right, if you if you scored, then it's your turn to be on defense, and then you have to tackle the other guy with the ball. Why did he do that? Why did this legendary coach talking to these professional players who had been playing football since they were children and who had learned all of these very simple things, why did he start the season off explaining to them the very fundamentals of football? Well, he knew that after a season like they just had, and after an off-season filled with press clippings filled with media interviews, filled with accolades, filled with people telling them they were the best. After a season filled with cheering crowds and adoring fans, he knew they needed to focus on the fundamentals. No crowd, no cheering crowd, no matter how much we like to believe we're participating in the victory of our team, no cheering crowd has ever scored a touchdown. No press clipping has ever made a tackle. No off-season accolade, no MVP award has ever thrown a block. But that's football. That's what needs to happen in order for a football team to win. And Vince Lombardi knew that his team needed to focus. Focus, on the fundamentals. And as we've been going through the book of Colossians over the last several weeks, Paul's letter to the Colossians is much like Vince Lombardi's speech. We need to focus. We need to focus. And that's why the Apostle Paul, as we've been looking at the past several weeks, is so clear on what the main thing is. What the main thing is. He's drawing the Colossians to focus on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And that's why in Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 10, he says this. This is what Paul prays for when he's praying for the Colossians. And so, from the day we heard, this is what he said, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk In a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, Paul wants these Colossian believers to be filled with the knowledge of God. He knows that's the main thing, to be filled with the knowledge of God. Now, why would he believe that? What is the point of being filled with the knowledge of God other than just to fill our heads with ideas? Well, What's the purpose of man? What's the very purpose of man? We read about it in Genesis chapter 1. Why did God make man at all? It was to be His image bearers, right? It was to bear His image in the world. How can you do that if you don't know who He is? So, Paul prays without ceasing that these Colossians believers will be filled with the knowledge of God so that they can bear his image. And how do we do that? How do we bear his image? Well, he s- explains how we are filled with the knowledge of God first in verses chapter 1 verses 15 through 17. He says, "He is the image of the invisible God." Who is? Christ. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? You look to Christ. For by him All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Everything in this world is about Christ. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what He's like, look to Christ. If you want to be filled with the knowledge of God, look to Christ focus on him the entire world is all about him focus on him and so Paul concludes chapter 1 and he says this him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this we I toil struggling with all his energy that he is powerfully that he powerfully works within me. Paul's entire life is devoted to this one issue, proclaiming Christ, bringing Him into clearer and clearer focus. That's Paul's point in this entire letter. And as we begin the second half of this book, it's good to remind ourselves Paul's point with this letter is to focus our attention on Christ our King. Over the last several weeks, Chris has done an amazing job teaching through chapter 2 of Colossians as we looked at some of the things that can distract us. And so, in, Paul, or in Colossians chapter 2 verses 4, Paul says this he says I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments he is now entering in in chapter 2 into teaching saying here are the things that might distract you from what you should be focusing on and he says in verse 8 and 9 he says this see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human according to human traditions according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. See, there's lots of things that are going on in this world, lots of philosophies out there, lots of ideas out there. Don't be taken captive by any of them. They will all lead you astray. They will all distract you. There's one thing you should focus on, Christ, your King. Last week, Chris warned us through uh, Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 about three things that can distract us from our focus on Christ, and one is by focusing on the culture over Christ, by focusing on the cultural norms of our age, by being distracted by what the culture wants us to do and what the culture is, is trying to get us to pay attention to, and taking our gaze off Christ and focusing on the culture instead Talked about becoming focused on spirituality and man-made religion, things that are are done by people to make them seem better than everybody else, things that make us seem more spiritual, to make us seem like we have some kind of spiritual insight that other people do not, visions and and uh, uh, you know special. Uh, Uh, abilities that people claim to have, that that they can do that other people can't do, or, or, you know, uh, religious practices that they think set them apart from other people. That can be a distraction. Then there's the distraction of legalism and performance, where we think it's our, what we are doing, our own performance that is the main thing, and the reason why all of these things can become distractions, and Chris said this so well last week, is because really all they are at base are efforts to please men rather than God. We want to look better to other people. We want to either conform to the way this world is, to the culture. We want to set ourselves apart from the world so that we can say, hey, I'm better than all of you, by our performance or by our religious activities, and at the end of the day, they're all really just distractions. They're people-pleasing. So Paul warns us about that at the end of chapter 2, which brings us to chapter 3 where we are today, and that's this. Our focus is not on people-pleasing. Our focus is not on men, it is on Christ our King. It is always on Christ our King, our ruler, our standard. He is who we follow. And it's with that in mind that our first point for today is this, the vision of Christ the King gives us our purpose and our true identity. When we look to Him, we see our purpose in this world and our true identity. And that's where Paul begins in chapter 3 as he he says this in verses 1 through 4, if then you have been raised with Christ. If then you've been raised with Christ. What does he mean by that? When Paul uses this phrase here, what he is probably referring to is, if then you have been baptized. Now, most people in here have probably been baptized. We're a Good Baptist Church. And so, if you attend with us one of our baptism services where we go outside and we baptize believers, one of the things you'll hear is the formula, right, that we always say over people when we baptize them. I baptize you, my brother or my sister, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, bearing you with Him in His death, Raised to walk in newness of life. Everybody remember hearing that at some point in their life when they've attended a baptism service? When you are baptized, you are professing your allegiance to Christ. You're professing that you have died to the things of this world in and through Christ's death, and that you are looking forward. Your hope is in the ultimate resurrection with Christ. And if that's your hope, if you've pledged allegiance to Christ, if you said my hope is in him and in him alone, Paul is addressing you here in Colossians chapter 3. And he says if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things where are above. What is above? what's Paul referring to here in verse 1? He's referring to heaven. He's saying, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are to come. Seek the things that are beyond this earth. What is beyond this earth? There's God that's beyond this earth that transcends this earth that He's created. And who is seated next to Him? Who is seated at His right hand? It's Christ. And what does it mean to be seated at the right hand of God? It means you're His King. What Paul is referring to here in Colossians chapter 3 are great prophecies from the Old Testament. One from Daniel chapter 7 where there's this great vision that the prophet Daniel sees of a, of a man, one who looks like a son of man, who ascends into heaven He ascends to the Ancient of Days, to God Himself, and there He is given an everlasting kingdom. There's a psalm in Psalm 110 where God says to this king, He says, Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool, until the whole world is in submission to you. And that's what Paul is referring to here In chapter 3 of Colossians, he's saying, seek the things that are above. Christ reigns in heaven. He's at the right hand of His Father, and His enemies are being made a footstool. The whole world will be in submission to Him one day. Look forward to that day. Know that Christ is King don't be impressed with worldly displays of power. Don't get distracted. Christ is King. Continues in verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not that are on this earth. There's lots of things on this earth that are impressive, that seek to grab our attention, and Paul says, do not be distracted. Keep your view on Christ. He continues in verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. See, Paul says, your hope is not in this world such as it is, your hope is not here. Your hope is in resurrection. You've died to the things of this world. You've given up hope for ultimate success here. Your hope is in Christ. It is hidden with Christ in God. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? In Romans chapter 8, elsewhere, when Paul is writing to the Roman believers, he tells them in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our witness that we are what? That we are children of God. That we're children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. See, Paul's teaching here is that the Spirit is testifying to us. What does that mean? How do we know the Spirit is testifying to us? What is the evidence that the Spirit testifies to us? It's the faith that we have in our hearts. The testimony of the Spirit is the testimony of faith. When we trust in Christ, when we know that God loves us, when we know that He's died for us, that's the Spirit testifying to our hearts. And when we feel that, when we know that, when we trust in Christ, when we place our faith in Him, what do we know? What is that evidence of? It is evidence of this, that we are children of God, that we're children of God, that we've been adopted into His family. And as adopted children of God, what does that mean? What does that really mean? It means that not only does Christ reign in heaven, It means that we are co-heirs in all of it. That is the graciousness of God, that He has made us co-heirs along with Christ, that He has loved us that much. Those are the things that are above. Those are the great promises to which we look. Those are the things Paul is warning against, being distracted from, those high promises. And Paul gives us even greater assurance that these promises will come true in chapter 8, verse 29, when he says this, for those whom He foreknew, for those whom God foreknew, for those who He loved, another word for that, for that f- word foreknew is loved, for those whom God loved. It's an intimate knowledge of a person. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, what's the destiny? What's the promise here? How is our life hidden in Christ? Our life is hidden in Christ because we are co-heirs with Him. Just as He is King in heaven, so are we. We will be raised as co-heirs one day and that's the hope that we look for. And then in addition to that, we are looking forward to the day when we are made like Him. Now, that's a hard thing to imagine. That's a really hard thing to imagine. It's so hard that here's how the Apostle John refers to it. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2, he says this, Beloved, we know, or we are God's children now, right now, not some point in the future. We are God's children right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't know how that's going to look when He comes back. We don't know. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. We shall see Him as He is. And so, what Paul is teaching the Colossian believers here is he's saying, keep your focus on Christ. He is the King. He is the King over all of it, and your life is hidden with Him. Your faith is in the promises that have been given to you as His child. Your faith is in the promises of God changing you to become like Christ. So, keep your focus on Christ, your ruler. Now, I use that word intentionally. I like using that word, ruler. It's a word that that many of us, when we hear that somebody rules over us, it it naturally kind of chases at us a little bit. As, As good, honest American folk, we don't necessarily like rulers over us but I use that word intentionally for this purpose. When we think of a ruler, we, we kind of have two ideas in our minds. We can think of the earthly king, right? The monarch, and most of us have pretty bad impressions of kings. They tend to be corrupt, correct? But there's another ruler that most of us aren't really concerned about, And that ruler is the little instrument that you used in elementary school to measure one foot or to make straight lines, right? That's a ruler too. Now, why is that a ruler? Why do we call that a ruler? We call that a ruler because it is the standard for one foot. If you want to know what a foot is, you pick up a ruler, and a ruler will tell you what a foot is. And if you have something else and you put it next to the ruler and it is shorter than the ruler, it falls short of the standard, right? It falls short of the standard. It's not what it should be. It doesn't measure up. So, a ruler, the first purpose of a ruler is as our standard. And when we call Christ our King and our ruler, what we're first recognizing is that He is the standard. He's the standard. He is what we are all measured against. And so when we look to Him, just as Paul proclaimed in Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of God dwells in Him. There is no ungodliness in Christ. There is in us we fall short of the standard. But there's no ungodliness in Christ. He meets the standard in every conceivable way. And so, that's one sense in which we look to Christ. That's how we focus on Him, is as our standard. But the second way we think of a ruler is that it teaches us exactly what's tr- what truly is, a foot. Like, you think of a ruler, a ruler doesn't, when you have that in class, it doesn't restrict you in some way. It's not like we can come up with our own definitions of what a foot is, and, and we, then we build a bridge, and, you know, you need five foot of equipment, but everybody else has their own standard of what a foot is, five feet of wood or whatever. Everybody else has their own idea of what that means. Well, that would be terrible for building bridges, wouldn't it, for building buildings? Would you want people who constructed this building to all have different tools that measure different lengths? No. You hope that all of their measuring equipment was in alignment. If it's not, the whole building collapses. Okay? So, a ruler, a standard in that sense can help us to know, can help set us free in a certain sense, can help us do what we're supposed to do. And So, Christ in that way, because He is our standard, He teaches us what we are supposed to do. And in that way, Christ sets us free. And that's what Paul's about to teach us here in the remainder of chapter 3. How we are set free by the standard of Christ. We're set free by the standard of, of Christ. See, godly discipline is the path to freedom. Not only does a king embody the standard But he's also, the king also sets his subjects free. That's the purpose of a king. That's the purpose of a ruler. The purpose of a ruler over a group of people is to give them freedom. Now, unfortunately, we have a problematic definition of freedom in our culture. When we think of freedom in our culture, Most of what people think about when they think about freedom is either A, the ability to do whatever it is we want, or maybe we can look at it this way no one tells me what to do, right? I'm free, I can do what I want to do, or maybe it's even deeper than that no one determines what I choose to do, right? That's what it means to be free in a certain sense, right? We have that definition that pervades our culture. And when you have that definition, the idea of a ruler, in some sense, can can be problematic, right? To have someone over you telling you what to do. Well, the reason why those two ideas seem to conflict is not a problem with rulers. It's a problem with our definition of freedom. See, that idea that no one can tell me what to do, no one can can determine my choice, I get to do whatever it is that I want, is not the definition of freedom. It's not. The definition of freedom, the biblical definition of freedom, is the ability to do what is good, the ability to do what is truly good. See, truth is inseparable from freedom. You can't separate the two. If your choices, what you choose to do, are based on lies, are based on what ultimately is bad for you, then you're not free at all. You're enslaved to your lies. You're enslaved to what's evil. Freedom relies on two things, truth and goodness. You must know what is true, and you must know what is truly good so that you can choose it. The free choice, the one that's truly freely made, is the one that's made when you understand, when you, when you have truth, and you understand what's truly good so that you can choose it. And so, a king in that sense, what the role of a king is to teach his subjects what is good. And he does that first and foremost, of course, by by doing what? By being good himself, by being the standard. And then what we see often on the other end of that is the laws that kings are supposed to pass, that rulers are supposed to pass, so that we understand what it means to be good, right? And so the biblical definition of freedom is to do what is truly good. And that's why Jesus can say in John chapter 8 verses 31 through 32 that my disciples will know the truth and the truth will set them free. The king instructs us in what is good and he makes his people free by making them good. And so what Paul is going to teach us here in the next several verses is what it means to be good what it means to be His subjects. And so, He says this in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them but now you must put them away, all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. See, Paul calls these things idolatry. What does he mean by idolatry? This is the lowering of your gaze from the things that are in heaven, and a lowering of that gaze back down to the things that are on earth. When you take your focus off Christ, and you lower it down to the things of this earth, this is what's produced. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, those are the things produced. from turning your gaze from Christ to the things of this world. But he goes on and he says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. So don't lie to one another. Why would he say that? Well, we've been talking, you know, last week we talked a lot about the distraction of trying to please other people of trying to impress men instead of being obedient to God. So, why would Paul say that here? Because that's our tendency, isn't it? To try to make ourselves look better to one another. To lie about what we're really like. To lower our gaze and say, I really care what my community thinks of me, and so I'm going to pretend that I'm holier than I am. I'm going to pretend that I'm farther along in this journey than I really am, all right? And Paul's guarding against it. He's saying, hey, don't don't lie to one another. Be honest about where you are. Confess your sins to one another. Don't pretend that you're more holy than you are. I'm not. I know I'm not. Take your eyes off the earthly things and recognize together, as a community, that we all fall short of the standard. We all fall short of the standard. Keep your eyes on Christ. All of us fall short of that standard, and we can be honest about that. We can be honest about that. We can be honest about our struggles, about our difficulties, about those areas where we still cling to the things of this world. We can be honest about that, and we can point each other back to the standard. Finally, Paul concludes here in, chapter, in verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Paul makes a point here in verse 11 to point out the earthly distinctions of his day. These are distinctions that everyone would have cared about. They would have cared about whether they were Jewish, whether they were Greek, whether they were of this nationality or that nationality, whether they were of this status or of that status. Those were the culturally accepted distinctions of their day. They were important to people. But to bring our gaze down and focus on their distinctions is a distraction. And Paul warns against against that. He warns against it. He warns against focusing on the distinctions of the culture over the standard of Christ. Christ is over all. There's so much application to what Paul is doing here to our day. In our world, we live in a world that is, is very unfocused. We live in a world that is committed to getting you to focus on all of the things that divide us, and there are many, there are many. And so many of those things that are there, that are, that are trying to get your attention, are just distractions. Some of the hot topics in our world today, and I I have no problem addressing these from the pulpit, are are hot-button cultural issues that that you see out there that you probably hear on the news, things like cultural intersectionality, which is the idea that uh, the distinctions between us, the different intersections that you cross as a human being, are important because they privilege certain viewpoints over another. So, for example, in this idea, in this framework. uh, If you are a white male, typically you're seen as having a more dominant perspective in culture, and so we should listen to you less because there are, you know, your your voice has been already overrepresented, and so we need to listen to somebody who maybe is uh, a, a woman, maybe of a different race, um, and maybe even of a, of a different sexual orientation, and that we need to listen to these people because of these distinctions that we have made up about them, and their views are somehow more privileged because they've been underrepresented in the cultural conversation, okay? That's intersectionality. How many intersections have you crossed? How many distinctive features do you have about you that either make you part of a privileged class and a, or an underprivileged class? This is a this is a common cultural narrative in our day and many of us who, who maybe who work in a culture a corporate environment have been involved in, in different training sessions and different uh, organizations our or groups have come in to speak to you about some of these ideas. Some of these ideas rear their head in public education or even in private education these days with critical race theory that's that's taught in schools where the idea is that we have to, examine closely the perspectives of other people who are different from us, and we have to try to see things through their eyes, through their perspective, because their perspective is a privileged perspective. They have different insight into the world than we do, right? At the base of all of these ideas that you see in our culture is the idea of viewpoint epistemology, Those are fancy words for your viewpoint, kind of where you sit, informs what is true for you, okay? These are dominant cultural ideas. It is impossible for us to avoid them. And as a church, we have to speak into them. And I want to give you a couple problems with these ideas. What is the problem with these ideas? should we take into consideration the viewpoints of others absolutely we have to we should try to be empathetic to people we should try to understand how they see the world that is that there is no doubt about that in my mind but when we make that the main thing there is a huge there are two big problems with it one is that that kind of worldview, when we overemphasize that in culture, in our worldview, what we tend to do is just divide each other. We just divide each other up into various groups, up into various factions where your identity as part of these groups, as part of these factions become dominant. And once you separated people up into these various groups and factions, it becomes hard to unify around anything. Very difficult to unify around anything. But there's a real practical reason why that is the case, is because the standard that that requires for me to get to understand everyone else's point of view is an impossibility. It's an impossible standard. There's just no way that any of us can, in reality, get to understand everybody's point of view. As a matter of fact, it's so impossible, for this reason, you don't even understand yourself completely. So, to try to get me to understand everybody's point of view when they don't even understand themselves is an impossible standard, and it will only lead to further fracturing and further division. Now, that doesn't mean there's no value in trying to get to know other people, trying to see things from their point of view. There absolutely is, but it cannot be the dominant motif, cannot be what we focus on. And the Apostle Paul here in Colossians 3 is speaking directly into that. You see, the biblical answer for this is not for us to get to know every single person's point of view as if that's the requirement. It's to get one point of view down the point of view of Christ. To get to know Him. To see things through His eyes. We're never going to get to know each other perfectly. I'm never going to see things exactly as you see them. That's impossible. But we can all seek together to know Christ. We can all be conformed to Him. And that's what Paul is speaking to here. That's our goal, is to know Him. There's one person, we must understand, and that's Christ. Now, after telling the Colossians what they must put off, Paul explains to all of us what it is we must put on. What must we put on? What does image bearing look like? Where do we begin? This is blocking. You know, I used the football analogy earlier in the, in the sermon. This is blocking, this is tackling this is running, this is catching, this is throwing. These are the basics. These are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. This is what he says, "'Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive.'" of what it means to be a Christian, that is blocking, that is tackling. Those are the fundamentals of image-bearing. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, not seeking your own way, patience, forgiveness, and faithfulness, bearing with one another over the long haul, being together without separating, without seeking schism, without seeking division, but bearing with one another. Those are the fundamentals. You know, one of the questions that I get frequently as an elder here at Christ Community Church is, why isn't this church a little bit more political? Now let's put aside for a second that I just dealt with some pretty political issues in our culture, let's put that aside for, for just a minute. And I want to say this this church is intensely political. Intensely political. Okay. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm comforted that we're on the right track when we preach week after week through the Word of God. And our preaching calendar is dictated by the text of Scripture and not by what's happening at every moment in every news cycle in the culture. And I'm encouraged about that when I read something like what we just read, where Paul is saying, focus on Christ. He is your king, and here's what you should do. And he says this, he, well, this is what he doesn't say, he doesn't say, put on then, as God's chosen ones, a political agenda to overthrow the emperor and install Peter as the emperor. He doesn't say that. Paul is not chiefly cons- concerned about who is the Emperor in Rome, and we at this church are not chiefly concerned. I have great concerns about who our president is. Do not get me wrong, but I'm not chiefly concerned by who's the president in Washington, DC. I am intensely concerned about who is the king of your heart. And that is the most political statement I can possibly make. You know, I started this sermon by talking about Vince Lombardi's famous speech, This is a football. And I could get up here and speak metaphorically and say, church, this is the football, right? This Bible is the football. And what I'm doing there is I'm speaking about this Bible really isn't a football. I'm using that as kind of an analogy, you know, to help you understand kind of this is the fundamentals. What this stuff says is what we should probably do and what we should probably believe. But when I say Christ is our King, I am being the farthest thing from metaphorical. He's not some metaphorical king, some pretend king that we've made up to kind of help us live better lives. He is our sovereign. We are His subjects. And when He says, these are our marching orders, this is what we do, this is what we do, and this is what we preach. And I believe firmly that presidents in Washington, D.C. will change when the church does what the Word of God says to do. And that's the main thing here. So, we are an intensely political church, and we promote a king who rules over us. Now, We have things to do. Paul gives us an outline of those things. He tells us what those things are. So, I want to finish with three very quick points, very quick points. With these things to do, how do we avoid legalism? Chris warned us about that last year. How do we, if we've got these things to do, if this is what it looks like to be an image bearer, how do we avoid not measuring kind of how we're doing by our performance underneath these standards? Because we're going to fail frequently, right? We're frequently not compassionate. I probably haven't been very compassionate sometimes in this sermon. We're going to fail frequently. So, how do we not get caught up in legalism with our performance And here's the third point. It is the love of God that gives us assurance that we will be conformed to Christ. It's the love of God that gives us that assurance, not our performance. Not our performance. We are going to fail. We trust God. We were called. We trust God. He will do it. He will do it. Paul teaches this in Romans chapter 7. He teaches this about himself. This is the apostle giving a perspective on his own personal life. Here's what he says about himself in Romans chapter 7. This gives me so much encouragement when I read this from the apostle Paul. He says this in chapter 7, verses 18 through 25 For I know that nothing good dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh for I have a desire to do what is right. I want to be, this is Paul saying, I want to be compassionate. I want to put aside my covetousness. I want to put aside these things that God calls me to, but I know that nothing good dwells in me. I want to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do do what I do not want, here's what he says, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. See, Paul has this kind of odd view about himself. He says, look, I still mess up, but it's not me. I know what I want to do. I want to serve God. And so, he has this view about himself, about his flesh, about what he sometimes finds himself doing in this world. And he says, I know, that part of me has died. I know that my life is hidden with Christ, right? I'm looking forward to the day when I'm resurrected and I no longer do this stuff anymore. But for right now, I still sin. And so, he says this, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells with me. And then he continues, So if I, so I find to be a law, to find it to be a law that what I want to, to do, then when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in my heart, I want to do what God commands. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you identify with that? No, no, I can't. But here's how he finishes Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because he knows that God, through Jesus Christ, is going to deliver him from this body of death. That's his hope. And that's why we don't fall into the trap of legalism, because over the course of our lives, we're still going to sin. And we better not believe. That is based on our performance. But we cling firmly to the hope, to the promise that God has given to us that He will deliver us from this body of death that we still inhabit here. And that's why the final two points are this. A genuine faith is a faith that is a thanksgiving faith. If you were to read the book of Colossians in one sitting, You know what word would probably be the most prominent word that you would see throughout the entire book? It's the word of thanks. Thanks. And here in these last few verses, Paul uses it three times and he says this. In verse 16 he says, "...let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness." With thankfulness. In verse 15, he, he just said it, and be thankful. And then in verse 17, he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's three times in three verses that he uses the word thanks. And he began the book by saying, I give thanks always to God for you, to the Colossians. Paul is just consumed in all of his letters with this overwhelming thankfulness for what God has done, because he knows that any of the work that he has put into this, any of the fruit that he has shown from his labor has in fact been God at work. And he trusts God for it. And when God shows Himself to be faithful over and over and over again, He gives thanks. So, the last point is this, and as Paul says in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, right? Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We do everything that we do for the glory of God, for His name, for His name, so that the world would know the glory of our King, that He is the hope of the world, and that's our role as Christians. Let's pray.